Kia ora, I'm Graham. Welcome to The Good Oil, conversations with Aotearoa painters. In this episode, I travel to Oterohonga to visit Heria Anderson Mita at her home and studio. Heria is Ngāti Maniapoto, Ngāti Apakura, Ririahu. Heria graduated from Whitecliffe College of Design and Arts with an MFA First Class Honours. Her work is held in numerous public and private collections, including the University of Auckland Art Collection, the Auckland Art Gallery Toy Otamaki, and the Waikato Museum. She is represented by Tim Melville in Auckland and Page Galleries in Wellington. Sitting down to speak with Heria was entertaining, fascinating, funny, and disarming. You'll hear her speak with a comfortable frankness about challenges that she has faced personally and those that still exist in her community. She talks about what is and isn't tapu to paint for her, why cooking pots are an important subject matter in her practice, and about the pivotal role a naked man jumping out of a birthday cake has played in her career. I started by asking about her childhood and first encounters with art. Yes, so um, I was born and raised in Ōtorohanga, uh, with my uh, grandparents uh, and my mother in this house on Tūrongo Street. And, um, yeah, so my my grandparents were um, very much into Māori arts and uh, my grandmother was a weaver, Rāranga, and in, in her later years. And my grandfather uh, was really um, supporting her in her practice. But he was also into the hahi, into um, the Anglican, Māori Anglican Church, as, as well as in his later years uh, into carving. And um, smaller carvings turned into a whareinui that's out in the front of our house. So he carved that in the 70s. Uh, I think uh, 74, around about that time, he was well into it when, when I was born. And so from that point there, I was raised in with them, and and uh, so they had a, an art uh, practice in their senior years, and I was involved with that. I was the kid running around playing in the flax, and you know, getting later in years cutting the harakeke for name you know, go and take this and go and cut, and cut it like this and bring it into me, and. Um, and going out with them to harvest and and having other nannies come around too and weave together, um, like Auntie Digger and uh, Tiago Davis and, and they'd come over and Pucky Harrison would come over to Granddad and they'd go out into the red shed, there used to be a big red shed out the side there where he carved and uh, and they'd do that and I'd be in with the um, mum prepping Kai and that was her her job, and so it's pretty much like that. And um, so, artist assistant from from day one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, involved in yeah, and, and involved in their arts and crafts and Māori Māori art, and um, and I travel with them too to different hui, different marae around here and outside. I was pretty much involved in in that. Um, also, when I got older, um, I attended Ngāpurawaihanga, um, Māori Arts and Crafts Group, so that uh, Granddad was the kaumātua, 
and this was, is in your teenage yeah, years uh, or? sort of yeah teenage years and so I started seeing different kinds of art being made like um uh, painted hui and bone carving and um, performing arts and so I was exposed to all these other arts outside of what I knew at home with Nan and Granddad. <clears throat> so that carried on until I was a young adult. So we travelled with Napanawaihanga or Tainui, we travelled down to the South Island to the people down in Hokitika and <clears throat> we went on the Arahura River and learnt about the Ponamu down there mm. and and our connection back up to to Tainui to yeah, so you also we were talking earlier and you were talking about your <coughs> works prints that were hanging in your parents' home I think or grandparents' home yeah yeah so uh, and that sounded like a really diverse mix of, of works yeah so, of English English uh, landscapes and uh, we've got a Salvador Dali that the that hung in uh, the furry up the top. Uh, and so, you know, I was exposed to all that imagery as well, uh, naturally unfolded in the house. And um, and uh, who is it, Da Vinci and uh, uh, who's that fellow that I mentioned this morning? Um, we were talking about Graham Sydney. Yes, Graham. Well, yes, Graham Sydney and and. Um, Who's that? Vermeer? Vermeer. Oh, you know, those sort of prints, those old sort of fashion prints that hung in the houses. Well, we had them in our house as well. And so that sort of inf- informed my, you know, my visual capacity, I suppose, for art back then. Just having these prints around the house. Um, decorative decorative prints. So it was interesting to know that Graham Sydney you know, uh, had an interest there for his practice. Well, same with me as well. I really um, enjoyed the the light of, um, of Vermeer. And so when I started to practice later on down the line, um, I think more so towards my, when I did my masters, then I started to, to study and watch him more closely. Vermeer. But yes, but um, I studied art at um, high school and also at Queen Vic. I went to Māori, Māori Girls um, School in Parnell, Auckland, and, uh, and there I <clears throat> took art, but I got a, a C for art <laughs> because I was too much of a tattoo, you know, into everything uh, else. But one thing I really captured me was photography, hmm. and um, they had a dark room there, and... Um, I think his name was Mr. Flintoff, was was our teacher, and um, he gave us um, Pentax cameras, the old-fashioned type so, with, so film with film, yeah. and uh, and we went around um, looking at, you know, the vistas around our school and stuff like that, and then uh, brought them back to the to the dark room and learned how to to develop. And that just captured me, that, that whole process of developing film in a darkroom, and um, and I was captivated by that. And also at Queen Vic, um, the other thing I was really interested in is, um, is theatre. So we used to go up to the Auckland University um, at night time, and they'd have their, um, their summer plays and stuff, and 
uh, Midnight Summer's Dream and all of that was being acted out up there and and I just fell in love with theatre and you know, moving, moving imagery and acting and that kind of thing. So, so theatre has influenced the practice oh, somehow. Um, I I think it's part of my makeup, my history. Mm. So all these little experiences that you have along the way uh, build the character that you are and what you put into your work as well. Somehow. Yeah. Stepping stepping back a, a little bit. Yep. Uh, what is an aqua jar? And how do you fin- win first prize <laughs> at the Otorahama School? Yeah, I, you know, I, lo- I loved it. So they used to have kind of like, um, like uh, rural fairs, like a county fair or a, a school kind of, yeah, rural thing. And you'd have, um, yeah, the aqua jar and uh, what are you, these little plates that you sort of, put sand in and then you decorate them with flowers. I, I did those. I'm from a yeah, farm yeah, school yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, and you, but, but an aqua jar is, is what? what? Oh, the aqua jar. So you put the rose on the on the jar lid, a rose or a flower kind of arrangement, and you make sure it sticks and then you fill it up with water and then sink it in so there's no bubbles and, and you just twist the jar on, turn it upside down and you've got this flowers and water. And yeah, first major art prize. Yeah, yeah, yep. Age. Oh, geez, I think I was about eight. I think. <laughs> yeah, and I found the ticket that you know that I got first prize in um, the other day. So in the in the context of experimenting, you know, with those art forms in school at a really young age, yeah, because you're dyslexic. Yes. Um, so. Did you have a sense of the importance of, of creating a visual language to balance out the dyslexia? Uh, most definitely, but I didn't know it was that, and I didn't know what I was doing. So I was a really quiet kid, and um, I was so quiet that my t- one of my primer teachers had a meeting with my mother and said, I don't know your child. She's been here for nearly a year. And I don't know who she is because I didn't talk or communicate that much. Um, and so she whipped me home, gave me a talking to. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then the next day, you know, the next week or so, you know, what did you do to your, you know, your kid? She's, she's really great. And, um, but it was hiding that uh, sense of not knowing more than the other kids. Mm. Um, so I, when they, when it came to telling stories or they would relay a story, it would light up in my brain hmm. so I could see everything. But in a book, it was a different story. So I didn't know the difference between there and there, you hmm. know, and the meant nothing to me and meant nothing. You know, those connected words. Um, verb, verbs, I knew pretty fast what a verb was. It was a thing that I could see. Was tangible, um, but I learnt the word verb, so I became quite close, more than nouns or adjectives, or you know I didn't really know what those were, so that's pro- probably how that was my world. So I shut down quite a lot right through till I, till I was a teenager, um, and but making art, making things. You know, my mother used to say I, I spread bloody bits of paper from one end of the house to the other. <laughs> and I was always making things and, yeah, 
all the time. So, so offsetting that communication that yeah, wasn't yeah, there yeah. In, a, in a language sense or written language sense with, with the dyslexia. Yes, yeah. yes, definitely, mm. definitely. And it, and it wasn't until I really gathered a sense of what I learned about dyslexia in my early 30s and mm. then everything made sense. Mm. So <clears throat> when I came back to clean out after my grandparents had passed away, my grandfather had passed, we came home to help clean up and I found a whole lot of my baby stuff and things that he had saved, they had saved. And I saw all the, the letters back to front. You know, I saw all of that those clues of dyslexia in my early stuff. And Without all being especially cognizant of yeah, it at the time, I mean, you're a kid. I mean, I, that's right, I was a kid, and so you, you kind of think, oh, well, that's normal for a kid. But that carried on through, <laughs> through my adult, young adult years as well. And I really, I was really scared of education, so I didn't, I didn't really want to go, because most of my family have gone through university and that, like, mm. But I didn't want to do that. I was really, really scared because my teen, uh, my childhood years of education was really scary. Um, standing up and reciting um, times tables and all of that type of thing was super scary. And so I didn't want to go down that negative pathway of, of mainstream education. Um, it wasn't until I got to Tewana Waltiaroa that all of that fell away hmm. and I began to fall in love with learning How? and learning at my pace well they took away <clears throat> they took away those those structures of of learning that we had in the old days hmm. uh, of uh, reciting especially the reciting in front of people that scared the shit out of me and um, so they um, introduced naturally um, other ways of learning and it's the most natural uh, ways of learning through doing and um, yeah and, and, and fun relaxed um, you don't have to do it you know those those things that are confronting it's just it was and and the whole environment of Wananga was so different to to mainstream education so I I went through all the courses really as a young adult coming from from Queen Vic as a young adult um, I went through all the courses that you could possibly do at, at Wananga for a few years because I loved this is early so much yeah yeah and it st that started fostering an art practice yeah uh, uh, 1994 I think was the first time I, I hit there, 93, 94. And so I started doing course after course until, um, and then I went away and did some other things like work. And then I came back and I found James Ormsby mm. and Eugene Cutter. And that was 1996. So I at, came back and did another course tourism there. At Te Kura at, Toi. At uh, Te Wānangwau Te Aro in Apakura at, um, in Te Ambiti. <sighs> I, f I came back there and I did tourism and while I was doing tourism I found that they were doing a course in arts so I bailed up uh, James Ormsby and Eugene Cutter in the in the cafeteria and said when are you enrolling next I'd like to come in uh, to see you and they said yeah we'll, we'll tee up a date for an interview 
And at the same time, I was thinking about going over to to Toi Hokura. Um, I think it was in Napier then, maybe? I can't remember. But it was over the over the East Coast somewhere. And, um, yeah, so I rang up Sandy, and I was interested in going over there. But... Um, and he was he was up for it, but it was only because James was closer that I decided to go with him. Well, he's quite an extraordinary so, talent yeah. to be able to access. So on yeah. the on the day of the on the day of the interview, uh, I had the decision to make because we Tracy and I were together then, and we were young without money. So Tracy, for the context, yeah, listeners, your, your yeah, partner. Yes, yeah. and he. Um, you know, we sort of kind of said, well, we need money. So it was either work at a dairy or <laughs> work at a dairy or go for this interview um, for the arts programme. So I did both. So the interview in the morning and then the arts programme in the afternoon. So I chose I chose the arts in the afternoon, went to, the, went to see them. And they were looking through my sketchbook that I had and they came to the end and there was this drawing I had done for my friend of a naked man jumping out of a birthday cake. And they <laughs> well, saw course, it and then they just Yeah, yeah. They just <laughs> cracked up laughing out of everything. And they said, you know, what what's the deal with this? And they showed me and I got all embarrassed and I said, Oh, it's for my friend, it's birthday, da 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 and um and they accepted me. <laughs> drawing based on a naked man jumping out of a birthday cake yeah yeah naked man jumping out of a birthday cake but it um, yeah so I took up the next two years studying with them and well a naked man jumping out of a birthday cake yeah it's probably not a bad segue (laughs) to to that that journey of your work you know if I look back at your paintings over quite a long time 15 years or so um, yeah. They're very, very different to what your practice looks like now. Yes. So there's clearly been a lot of experimentation to get to what is quite, um, you know, realist representational yes. work. Yes. So I, I was wondering if you could talk through, you know, what that journey's been like and, and experimenting with the practice to to get to where you are. Yes. Uh, with James, uh, James took us for drawing and painting and art history, and um, Eugene took us for sculpture on various and various mediums um so with james he took us for art history uh every thursday and now it was kind of beaming me back to mainstream school again and i got really scared of that because although i wanted to know but i had no concept of art history you know, this is in uh, 98, 97, 97. No concept of art history at all, um, apart from what I'd seen on the walls, but no, mm. where did they fit? Mm. And I had trouble with the timeline of, well, what the heck is the 17th, 16th, 15th century? You know, I had no idea how they fit. Um, so <clears throat> I kind of rebelled against... Um, that because my brain wouldn't let that information in everything that he put forward but I was I was interested in it but I couldn't receive the information so later on down the years when I did a bit of tutoring for for the Wananga um, I thought well if I struggle with that other students could possibly do that too so in our theory in our theory room I've jammed the 
all the books into the photocopier and photocopied all the centuries of art out and I put them all along the room, all around the room. Is it chronological? With the, yes, that's right. Um, the timeline with the 15th centuries onwards, all the centuries, and put all the dates in so the students could understand the changes. You could see the changes in, in art through the, through the centuries and who did what, and um, uh, mostly European um, art history that I focused on. Uh, to help us understand visually, um, at least. And so um, <clears throat> that was the biggest, uh, one of the biggest. Um, to, to quote back yeah, at you, in the yeah. you know, context of what you've just talked about, um, as, as a painter, I'm interested in representation of Māori within a context of European history of painting. Yeah. So looking at that chronological framework of European painting, did you start seeing a way to, to represent Māori in that, in that history? Well, when I was, that, that actually, that quote, that lo- very loaded quote, is a very, <laughs> um, we speed through time a little bit and end up at, at Whitecliffe. Mm. And th- from there I began to learn about art, painting in particular in New, in New Zealand and the purpose of painting in early days, traditional Western European type painting that was coming in from overseas and painters that were coming out overseas to, and seeing this as expansive land and the people and emptying of the land and the purpose for those paintings mm. to go ship, be shipped off back to England and then I thought about our place um, and our place on this whenua and the European Western colonial gaze of Māori um, from from a Western perspective. And so uh, I saw the importance of uh, Māori artists, not just myself, um, but Māori artists that work in realism and being able to tell our story from our perspective back out. Um, and that's sort of emerging for you at Whitecliffe. That, 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 that in particular um, became apparent at, at Whitecliffe, yeah. With some you know, guidance from tutors, etc., or just something that started dawning on you? Uh, so Noel was Noel Ivanov. He mm. was my, um, my supervisor mm. for painting. And so that time period um, of shaping my, my work was pivotal through, through uh, Noel. Uh, so he didn't touch what I was doing, but he saw what I was doing. And so he presented ideas, he presented theories, and then asked me to look at those and make decisions about what I'm doing, what they were doing, and uh, look at how I move forward. The they so, being those early New Zealand European uh, colonial yes, painters. Yes, yes, So he, he asked me to look at the, the landscape of what was going on um, back then. Um, you know, basically he said, if you, if you want to know where you sit, you've got to look out what what has happened. Give yourself some context. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. And 
Um, and then we worked on it and we worked really hard and I say we because I, I bring him in so close because it was um, a meeting of minds it was hard to get through um, to each other at first uh, because um, being um, heavily academic as Noel is and what you do is you read dyslexics you know <laughs> like a minefield but you know yeah. um so yeah we kind of had this moment where um we sort of butted heads I think or yeah about what I was actually doing and I said to him you know in my studies I said uh, this is the way that I learn and take in information and um I can't read everything that you send through, and um, can and then he said, "I see, I see." So he said, "Well, you have to read through this because this is what everyone else is getting." So um, I'll send it to you, and then I'll ring you, and we'll talk through it all. So that passage will work, and we'll talk through it, and then. He gives me, you know, names, places, times, and then I go and listen t to the audio wherever I can find it on here. And, um, you know, whether it be YouTube or Vimeo or whatever that is. And, um, and so I collect all of that information by audio and listen to it while I'm painting. And then come back and we talk again or he comes down to visit me. So that's a, a yeah. really yeah. significant like step forward at the... That's how so, we worked uh, it out. Three years at Whitecliffe? Four, yeah. four years? Yep, three years at Whitecliffe for Masters, yeah. So that sounds like an, an enormous step forward in, in the context it of was. 15, 20 years of painting. That three years it sounds was. like you've really settled into a... Well, when I first came on in the advanced programme, not the Masters, they uh, asked if I could do a year before just so they can sort what it out sort me out and I said yes so it took a year of sorting out my practice because I didn't want to do painting I wanted to do everything else but painting because I was doing everything else from uku to you know sculpture um, to found object to you know a bit of painting here and there but nothing concrete like you said um, I was doing things different to what I am doing now. So that's the, the, that change happened at Whitecliffe. So um, Henry um, approached me one day at the end of the year when I did a, this painting of my mother-in-law. Um, he's a, 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 the dean. He was the dean back then at Whitecliffe. And um, so he said to me, Dear Henry, you are a fucking painter. You know, he said that to me, and it stopped me in my tracks when he when he said that to me. And then when it came to masters, um, and I teed up with Noel, he said, "Forget about everything else. Concentrate on painting." Well, how difficult was that? Given that that's not, it doesn't sound like that's at all where your head was at. Uh, I I I agreed to it, and and. It was my strength, and I saw it through their eyes, through because I'm I'm kind of 
always stuck in this pattern of um, I'm I'm not good at that, you know, I'm not good at that. So um, I trusted what they were saying and went, went for it. And so, you know, Masters was pretty expensive and so I had one chance to nail it so everything fell away, um, even, you know, any preconceptions of what I do or um, or the ego that all of us have, you know, I left mine at the door and just soaked in all the information um, that anyone was imparting and, um, and went for it and made those three years count. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, best, best, best time that I had there in education was at Wycliffe, yeah. Well, speaking of, you know, your work being seen through other people's eyes, yeah. the Auckland uh, Art Gallery um, acquired a number of your works before you'd even finished yeah. at Wycliffe, yeah. so, so that, that has to be, had to be, I suppose, to yes. understate, really encouraging. Well, they, well, they were, they were finished, um, though I did do them after Wycliffe, uh-huh. um, but people took notice of my work at uh, my master's uh, final show, um, so that that was interesting, but it would took it took a lot of work um, to hone my practice. So most of that change. I mean, you mentioned scale. So for the purpose of for the purpose of the time that we had together to work through masters, Noel and I, um, we reduce the scale but we also reduce the scale for um, the ability to hone the skills pretty much tightly and get you know marching through the works and and I learnt that um, the processes you know you're gearing up for a career so he also helped me shape that by uh, working on multiple artworks at a time so it became um, working uh, strictly working every day uh, working on smaller pieces in multiple numbers which is still how you practice it's still how I practice now and it's the most comfortable to me and when I talk to other people about it you know I feel comfortable and relaxed about it but they're saying how can you just you know how can you work like that I you know just working through one or two pieces but it's it's how I've um, learned to to work my practice, and it's yeah. Well, after those, in t- terms of setting up a bit of a timeline here, uh, like around the same time or after those works were acquired by Auckland Art Gallery, Tim Melville um, started representing you. So, is is yes. still your dealer as long as yes, so he yes he saw me and um, he saw me at my final show and the work, um, so. Um, that was an important seeing, so he purchased a few of the works. Um, the works were, you know, discreetly for sale for all students and for me. And so I, I, I think I got sold most of them that night. There was quite a lot, about thirty or so works. But Tim pretty quickly was, was um, saying he, he said, wanted to represent his. Oh, he yeah no he said well we could work for something you know it wasn't anything in concrete it was just I'm interested and I'll get in contact with you 
um, send me your MFA um, catalogue. And so, yeah, I did that. And it took a while. And so it was just bit by bit showing in the in the back room there um, and then showing a bit more until saying... And then we, you know, lost touch for a little while. Comes back again um, because somebody came to purchase my work that he knows and it sparked off again. Oh, yes, so... Um, how, how comfortable are you with those shows, like showing work? Is it a nerve-wracking process for you? or Nerve-wracking. You were quite excited about getting the Oh, no, out yeah. No, it's, it's pretty scary. Um, so... It's no problem to work on shows here in my studio, um, take them out. I'm more comfortable now, but I'm quite scared of groups of people, I'm quite shy. I revert back to my quiet um, self and, yeah. So and you're some, comfortable with the work being out there, but maybe not oh, representing Yeah, I'm comfortable person. with the work. So when they leave their studio, they're out to live their own life. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Well, I really, needless to say, really wanted to talk about like your co-papa approach to work and the principles, you know, behind it. And it seems like there is almost three spheres that that overlap with your work between the really personal, um, so self-portraits and, and portraits of your partner Tracy, mm-hmm. um, community, and yeah. and your proximity to and a want to record that. Uh, and then objects and, and places and the importance of, of those. Yeah. I suppose for a start, is that a fair read of how you work? Uh, yes, it is. I mean, when when Noel came down here for the first time, because I had studios in Chalmage, two studios, so they had pretty much seen me up there in these studios. But um, I moved back in 2016 back into this house with my grandparents. Mm. And uh, with... Um, the money that I'd raised from finals, I actually did did up the interior and put some more natural light into my studio. And um, which, by the way, we're sitting in now, was, and yep. it's a it's a great space. To, it looks like a great space to work in. Yeah, it is uh, a nice and cozy. And I have to I have to deal with um, my large works, so they can't all fit in here. So I have to take them into the sitting room and rotate my works in and out. Um, because it's just too much jammed in here. Sometimes when you're working on 30 works, um, and then my my family have to um, live amongst them and <laughs> shift them around off the <laughs> off the chairs and off the, you know to, so they can find a seat. Um, but yeah, that's that's the way that I work. Yeah, well let's oh. let's talk about the personal layer maybe first. So the self portraits okay. and and portraits. There's a few specific paintings that I want to talk about you know today, and and one of them is a work called uh, called Breathe, which yes. is a, a portrait. And, and by the way, for listeners, um, yes. I'll include images on um, the Good Oil uh, Instagram page, um, and also include some some links on um, the the uh, uh, podcast details page. Um, but but Breathe is a as a quick description is a portrait of your partner. Tracy. Yes. Um, in what is a reasonably, I think, vulnerable vulnerable position. Um, so in a hospital, mm-hmm. mask on. Yeah. If you if you could talk through, you know, that work and 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 what it meant, um, because the, I have to admit, the first time I saw it, it really, really stopped me in my tracks. It's a, a really extraordinary and, and very personal feeling work. Yes. Yes. I I paint about um, the everyday. I paint about. Um, 
what's happening in our lives um, of not only my own family but the you know the 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 communities and that I live in and with uh, with Tracy I um, there is a lot of vulnerability in that in that artwork and that comes with a series of work that I've done on on him on his illness um, not you know I I'm conscious of how personal that work can be but um, for me it is not just him that's suffering um, our families our whanau our hapu iwi um, and you know those in Aotearoa are suffering with renal failure uh, with diabetes type 2 diabetes and all of those chronic illnesses and because they're in front of me um, I as a painter um, I I paint about that subject uh, matter and I, and I put our relationship to the side as much as I can um, and paint about those things that uh, are affecting our people yeah hearing you say you put your relationship aside yeah in that work especially mm. yes but also but absolutely not no. it's such an extraordinarily yeah. intimate almost I don't know if romantic's quite the right word because I know it's such a, a difficult moment you're capturing yeah. But it's so personal that it's absolutely yeah, a relationship. Yeah, that absolutely, painting. absolutely. Um, I think about all of those other people outside, but when you're confronted with your partner, that's that's not in a good position. Um, and um, I I think that that particular painting was about us. Mm. You know, it was about him and I. It was about him. Uh, like in his life I've always known him as a tough a strong man very capable, very feisty and independent um, and at that moment it was different it was a different that um, person I saw and I remember feeling very, uh, very sad and, and sorry that he is going through this um, and the other aspects of it are he's been in renal for a while now and there's a lot of feisty independent uh, Māori men and they're going through the same thing mm. so that would um, be on one level deeply personal yes, but on the other yes. it's community as, as yes, well very, um, my mind is always and absolutely on um, communicating outside of my personal space. Um, yeah. Although I suppose there's another aspect to that work that we need to note, and that is, um, you know, Tracy being obviously the subject, but yes. it, it seems extraordinarily brave of him to be willing to let you paint. It seems like an amazing vote in your confidence as a painter yes. for, for him as a subject to allow that moment of vulnerability into what is a literally life-size canvas of, yes. of him. I I do a lot of work and I don't know how many others out there, painters, uh, capture those kinds of, what do you call it, 
subject matter mm. in their artwork. Um, for me, it's it's a part of our lives, and and he's just fine with it. He he always tells me it, it's okay um, to do that, and he says there's a bigger uh, there's a bigger things going on than than you and I that need to be That's out there, or else or else he wouldn't. Um, well, it seems like an incredibly brave step as, yeah, a, as a subject. Yeah. Oh, he's he's so used to it now. I think I think all <laughs> all artists, that, all painters, you know, have have um, free um, subjects to you know <laughs> the family, you know, get whipped in to to paint uh, for our practice. You know, when I think about just solely my practice without any depth of you know of narrative. It's solely to, you know, commit to a practice. So, you, you know, you drag your partner in and you get a, you know, I'm not the only one. I know that there's, um, there's a whole history of, of painters that uh, pull in their partners and wives and husbands and, you yeah, get to it and kids. Mm. I can certainly say that the first work of yours that really stood out to me was a, a work of, uh, I suppose, a self-portrait of yourself lying in bed with, you know, Tracy oh, just visible yes. on the other yeah. side of you. Yeah. So, which is uh, telling of your work because it's such an intimate, quiet, careful little study of a couple yes. of people. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. I've still got that one too. Yeah, he's got it up in uh, Hamilton. And, uh, yeah, I love that too. Mm. The, the softness um, there, yeah. Of a, of a couple, yeah. This might be a, a strange question, but I'm I'm wondering in the context of portraiture, mm-hmm. when you're painting Marai and Popo, mm-hmm. do you consider those portrait paintings? Uh, portrait paintings, I, I, I suppose so. Um, they're they're depictions of people even if there is an absence of people um, they are um, people that exist in those spaces that created those spaces but they don't necessarily have to be there so people or no people Um, but the The fakairo that is in th- that is present in my work embodies people of the past. So, yes, you know it's not not a, in a traditional sense of portrait, but you know, yeah, hmm. an extension of that most definitely. That probably leads into that other sphere of practice around community so outside of that really personal mm-hmm. and and obviously Marai is really really present and you know what I think of as being those community paintings mm-hmm. but you know so uh, church public spaces your own home the Otorohonga Museum mm-hmm. um, so there's these all these places that are clearly community to you mm-hmm. um, where does that sit in your practice like is it a want to record community and what it what it means yeah, I I actually see what's happening around me, so I can't preempt anything. It's like a rollout of life, a rollout of life in painting. So I can't pre-plan exhibitions, you know, of what they're going to be. Um, I 
as I live my life, the paintings, you know, take take shape. And so they're like a record of things that have happened, you know, in my life and in, within our community. Um, so, yeah. And, and joining the uh, the Otorohonga Museum Committee, yes. which you have, that seems like such a natural extension to what your practice is. Oh, so, so has that fitted quite neatly into, into life? Yes, it was uncanny because my... I knew there was a museum, but I didn't know where. Um, it was pretty shut down, but they had received funds to get people in to open it up. And I came on a, in a, um, as a committee member at the same time as Nikki Dealey um, came on as a curator, um, like collections manager for the place. And so um, little did I know my grandfather was there as a committee member when it first opened. Huh. Yeah, yeah. And so I got to see a lot of their early work and... Um, and his notes and his, the notes about him, you know, go down to Ruiz and, you know, see where this old mill, you know, see if he's got any remnants of, of the old mill, you know, yeah. they they wanted to track things down and and because Granddad was very much of a preserver of, you know, of history. And so um, they, you know, get hold of him for things. So I, I got to see the picture of what it was like, um, back in those early days and to know that he was involved. Um, so that was interesting. Which the show um, Tonga came yeah. out of. So yes, paintings yes, of, yes. For, for listeners say, paintings of yes. uh, trophies. Yeah, mainly. those trophies and, of and cups. And a few other pieces in the collection Yeah, the they've museum. got a, you know, they've got a, like hundreds of cups down there for all occasions. And they all, you know, some of them were like 1901, you know, through to the 30s, 50s, 60s, and... Um, it was interesting because it, I got to see the lives of people past, you know, of what their interests were and what was um, important at the time, like calf rearing and things like that. They got a, got a um, you know, a little cup for, you know, calf rearing and stuff like that. And so you got to see what was um, principal on the, in the minds of the people back then. And so I thought, you know, I, I'd like to have a go at, you know, sh- putting these cups out in, into the world. And, uh, yeah. What's interesting, calling that show Tonga, yes. of, you know, what is, I know not the show's not completely those old, you know, cups, yeah, cups or, or yeah. trophies, yeah. But, um, but it does seem to give them a new grace and a new sense of place yeah. yes. that they may have had historically, but since yes. you, you know, you're replatforming them or, or reintroducing yes. them to the community. Is that fair? Yes, that's absolute, you know, the reading because they've been, you know, on lockdown for so long and then all of a sudden they come back out again. Um, and I wanted to, to show them, yeah, and to share that old... Um, history and interests of the people, you know, back then, in those times. Yeah. And as an artist, you know, as a painter doing paintings, I'd loved, I loved, wanted to see that, that shine and hone my practice in on, you know, the actual thing, the physical thing. Well, as yeah. a, actually, this, as an aside, this is almost the, the elephant in the room here, I yep. think, uh, to some mm. degree. Yeah. And that is um, what I think is almost turned into a, a motif of yours, if not 
a yeah. painting obsession. Yeah. Uh, stainless steel pots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In, in all shapes and sizes, they they yeah. seem to pop up in numerous paintings. Yeah, for for all kinds of for all kinds of reasons. I think, um, gee, just to just to name the f- a few, you know, that being at the par um, is all centered around looking after the people in Manaki and taking care of them. And the the biggest active space apart from the pie pie is in the kitchen. You get to feed and look after the people. Well, my grandmother here, she was a caterer, and so she was big on that. And so she, we, I had to take part as a young kid and look after the people in Manaki and help her to do that. So I was given lots of jobs to Manaki, the people. And so I think in terms of narrative, um, that's a very strong particular part of our culture. And whenever, like I did um, uh, one set of pots for, for one exhibition up in Tim Melville's, and it was just honed in beautifully and... Um, uh, really nice, but the other thing is, is that they came and said, "Oh, that's that's my granddad's pot," and I can just see, you know, just imagine the winnow winnow and that being cooked. So it was nostalgic for the people that were looking at the work, and ultimately, you know, someone purchased that work, but it brings it back so many uh, warm. Uh, memories of our culture and our tikanga and the way that we do things and so th- as long as they gravitate to that I I have no problem at all um, facilitating that for th- for them. So, for so that's why those pots feature so, yeah, yeah, so yeah, frequently yeah, because yeah. there's... A part of every marae and you know I've done, uh, Gor- uh, who's that? Uh, Peter Gordon? He um, has one of my works, and it is a, a, a pot in the kitchen at Kimiora at Turanga Waiwai, and he saw it and recognised it straight away. And, um, the, you know, the, the power of his, uh, you know, he recognised that, and that's a part of his, of his life and career, uh, now and I find, found that really powerful and for me as an artist having him have that work uh, uh, meant, a, meant a lot not you know for, for, for fame's sake but because he has a career that is focused around that and that's yeah that's beautiful outcome well yeah, that's so that I guess so it's not just a pot not just that Hedia loves painting pots just to get the shine <laughs> but it's you know all of that those layers come in into it but, yeah. but from a technical point of view before we leave pots yeah that is also part of it right you do enjoy the nature of, of the surface oh, of, of painting those I do I do I um it, it's like a challenge it's like a, a red rag to a bull <laughs> yeah and so I love that kind of practice that can help um, bring that um, that shine forward that three dimensional kind of um, look to a work um, but it's not the be all or end all as well I've had um, works that are halfway cooked and I love them for the fact of their brush strokes, for mm. the for the minimal, 
um, uh, brush strokes and fiddling around with things and I just leave them as they are mm. and I've done that uh, quite a few times and I appreciate uh, also uh, the paint for what it is mm. as well. Well stepping back to you know that relationship that Peter Gordon has with, with that work, Yeah, your, your mahi often seems to be wanting to create a conversation more than yeah, just definitely. sit there and say, oh, here's my experience of the world. Yeah, You seem to want to take it one step further than that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to make connections with people and I think part of it is that I am shy. So part of the way that I communicate is through my artwork. So, you know, I'm talking to people through my artwork when I find it difficult to talk in person, yeah. There's a piece there that I'm, I'm really curious about. You've talked about wrestling with de- determining what's tapu to paint and, and what's not. And that sounds like a really fascinating and, and pro- probably difficult process. Is, is it both? And, and what is that process that you go through? Yeah, it's like, um, it is really, I think it's the most difficult, challenging part of being a um, uh, representational Māori painter that is quiet and doesn't like to talk and engage, you know, with people. You know, I find it really difficult. I love people and I love talking to people but I have uh, this weird difficulty in approaching people I think it is and so um, normally you know and I'm putting myself right out there um, normally people like to gather consent you know and and do things properly and you should and I love to do the same as well it's just getting past that um, initial uh, permission yeah uh, approaching people Hmm. for that like I can't I can't go up to someone on the street and say, hey, you look really cool. Can I paint you? Even though I want to, like my, my eyes are screaming out, go, come on, because you're get too over shy. there, you know, get over there and just say, you know, you never know. But I can't do that. I just can't do that. And so one thing happens is that I miss out on a painting that I really want to paint. And the other thing is, is that I go into the background and do things quietly and without much disturbance or um or what do you call it um permission what did you from others so we've just looked up um dennis turner uh port uh draw drawings um of tangi yeah so for, for listener reference if you uh, google uh, dennis turner and a book called tangi you'll get an idea of what heria is yeah. uh, talking about so he's done a whole suite of, of drawings that ended up in a book that was published sometime in the 60s, 66, I think. And seen it and for the first time this morning. It's an yeah, extraordinary book. It came at the re- really at the right time for me. And so he's a European artist, an English artist, and um, he came in in those early days and drew a suite of drawings about a tuggy that was happening in Waikato 
and um, and he, by the looks of the drawings, he was free to do so. So he, he, um, it was open for him to draw and for me um, to do the same would be uh, comprehensively more difficult because I am well aware of protocols tikanga and kawa of the marae and with my grandfather as well I knew very well what you took photos of and what you didn't and you did not uh, record things that were on the tangi including very much including tangihanga or any principle around that so uh, I know the rules so how do I negotiate that as a as a painter and, and painting there must, the, must be a greater sense of responsibility yeah. being so close to the community with that as well it is it is and sometimes um, I bite the bullet and take it uh, as a risk for me to do so this is this is me talking to me this isn't anyone else talking to me about it this is my own rules based on what I've learnt in our, in our culture going on in my head those conversations but um, now and then you see this book like Dennis Turner's come out and um, this beautiful um, set of drawings that uh, that record our a period and time of our culture and our tikanga and kawa represented and some aspects of the, that tikanga don't exist anymore. Mm, they're so incredible, I was, incredible images. Yeah. They, they're really raw but really personal yes. and, and honest work, aren't they? Then? Yes. So I was privileged you know, all these years on, to go back and have a look through that book mm. and see um, those things. And that's really resonated recently Keep because you, you lost your father a few months yes. ago, or yes, a couple I months did. ago, and you're talking about doing a body of work uh, about his tonguey. Well, uh, probably not not his alone, but in probably I think more about tonguey, mm. about the processes that take place these days, and because one of... One of the imagery that arrived through my eyes um, at this tangi was um, uh, kuya, about four of them, and they were all in black, and they all had um, greenery around um, them, and they all were wearing masks, the blue masks. COVID masks. COVID masks, mm. and that is a sign of our times. Mm. So looking at um, uh, Dennis Turner's work and the sign of those times for those old people that that uh, solidified in my head that I need to do the same now um, because, you know, 60 years down the track, it'll be different again. And that's what... Uh, in essence, that's the purpose of my whole working career. Mm, through again to record community yeah. and those really intimate moments yeah. of community. Yes. Mm. Yeah. That said, there's there's work that feels like it goes a step beyond just that recording of, of community and feels like you're exercising, you know, almost some some soft power with some of the works. So mm. again to, to speak about a specific work, in fact probably a, a couple of pieces of, of work that are both owned by the University of Auckland now, so I've gone into their collection. Yes. The work Whakakotahi 
and also the work Land Survey. And, yes. and both of those works look pretty innocent when you immediately look at them. One is a bowling green um, with the yes. Kiki Kiki War Memorial yes. and uh, you know, range of hills in the yes. background. Yes. But there is, there's, I suspect there's far more going on in that work because you, yes. Hedia Anderson is never going to paint just a bowling green, <laughs> yeah. is she? <laughs> yeah. so, so could you talk us through you know, that work and, yeah. and everything that's, that's in that? And again, there'll be an, an image of that that I'll include um, for listeners uh, on the Ligoro Oil yeah. Instagram page for you to reference. Yeah, I um, I keep on go- going back um, as an artist. I keep on going back to that bit of landscape with a good bowling green, you know, and I pass it every you know week, um, and I think about the Kiki Kiki War Memorial and what it signifies, but also I think about that whole Fenua, and um, so just in the hills. Uh, behind is um, Rangi Alfia and uh, in Parawira and this is around uh, Te Aumutu. So, so yes. if you if you're standing where the fence is, where the bowling green is, you're looking over into the bowling green, and then straight ahead, uh, into the distance, is a set of uh, maunga landscape, maunga kind of, and so it uh, just before that maunga is. Um, is Rangiafia and the the British uh, colonial um, powers came down and uh, they were um, in, invading uh, invading Pa and they ended up in Rangiafia and devastated uh, the people, my people uh, devastated uh, that settlement and uh, so that time period existed along with the war memorial uh, for World War One. and then there's these people playing bowls below quietly and innocently all this these years later while war was taken part so I I noted that, but also noted that these people are most likely the descendants of the people that were there on the day, most are. Because Mali and Baki are are playing bowls together. together, Mm. Yes. And so so those people, the descendants, are most likely of the the people that were part of the war. Um, That was part of the, because I worked uh, for a bit at uh, Te Omitu Museum, and I didn't really know uh, the makeup of our community until I went to do some work at the at the museum. And there were granddads bringing their mokopuna and you know English English grandparents and wanting them to see um, the history of the of the muskets and things like that because they you know, grandparents and stuff, and and I, I saw the generations come through, and it was quite a lot more than I had ever thought, you know, of people that had settled here after the war, so there's had a piece children. That, there's a piece there of recording, again, that community piece, but also historical yes, record as well. Yes, yes. For you in that painting. So it was, for me, it's painful, but mm. it is also mm. lovely to see after all that's been said and done for these for uh, Māori, this is Māori on the Bowling Green as well, 
with um, with Pākehā playing bowls together and enjoying themselves. And and I wanted that referenced. Um, yeah. Mm. It's a wonderful painting. Thank you. Mm. Um, and, and likewise, again, another, you know, almost innocuous-looking painting. But yep. again, I suspect it's not, uh, you know, is, is land survey. So, you know, a yep. painting of yes. a land survey tool. I think a, I think a theodolite, is that, yes, uh, yes, what that, it is. that piece it is, is called? It looks a little innocuous, but... Um, not, I suppose, in the context of, of land in the Waikato. Uh, that's right. And I've had quite a few conversations with my family, uh, with my mum and auntie in particular, um, about who were land survey, surveyors around Ōtorohanga. And um, it's brought up stories about the men that were surveying around around the early uh, 1900s, you know, onwards, and children of those surveyors. So um, I, uh, that, that tool in particular is referenced, so it has a accession number and a person who has donated um, that theodolite too. Uh, to the museum, but I thought it was uh, interesting to exist inside a church. So, um, yeah, and what the metaphor could possibly be, mm. you know, for that, and and I just leave it, leave it out for you know people to start a conversation. To, yeah, mm. yeah. There's also though the what feels like just the everyday observation. So again, work that I really love is putting yeah. plates. Yeah, they they seem like still life. Yeah. almost these works yeah. so putting plates um, there are a Waikato draft bottle um, you know and the Farakai, so many pots yeah. as we've already talked and about so do you mean to yeah do you mean to reinvent still life in a way uh, mm, uh, not really because I'm not <laughs> looking I'm I'm just saying how it is from my point of view on that day that I was there so everything that I paint has been seen by and experienced by me it's yeah, not a second-hand account. Um, yeah. So, as it is, you know, I'll, I'll paint it. Yeah. As and, I, and I look for composition, and I look for the you know the the artist's eyes are always, you know, looking for placement and how things look interesting and where they are sitting, um, in juxtaposition to one another and all those kinds of things. I I look for that as well. Yeah, that makes it's me my think. Eye. That makes yeah. me think of some other works that I really admire. And there's yeah. there's actually a, I wasn't expecting this, but sitting in your studio today, there is one, and so it's turning into a series. Um, yeah. You can you can see me looking up um, to. Uh, you know, painting of a, a tukutuku panel with you know a uh, a power cord and PowerPoint you know smack bang in the middle of that. What are those works about? Because there's there's a few of those now. Yeah. Either kofi-fi being yep. inter- interrupted or accommodating something as banal as a uh, you know as a PowerPoint. Yep. So that tukutuku uh, is is painted uh, and for real in our whare. So my grandfather did the interiors of the of the, the whare that's out on, on, the, on our front lawn. And um, so I took up a practice to study his work, to study his painted tukutuku, 
to use his colours. Um, and so quite quite before these um, PowerPoints and things showed up, I was painting um, the room uh, with things in it, like dehumidifier and stuff like that. Mm. And then I started closing in on Fakairo and Tukutuku. You know, and I practiced that, and I closed in a bit more, and then I wiped off out all of the the things that are sitting around, and I just painted on the painted the tukutuku on its own, and I did a um, quite a big massive one around the time COVID hit, um, but I wanted to study, you know, because I came in quite close. I wanted to study um, how paint set on, how the white and brown paint set on the black what happens when some of those paint marks are transparent and some of them are not, what what happens when the paint starts flaking, um, how did he manage to to do the crosses all succinctly, um, turns out it wasn't, you know, it was quite, um, then the then the, the crosses became signatures, mm. so I realised that some people had done some work and another totally different person had done carried on making crosses so there wasn't just one person doing all the work and then I uh, wanted to know um, how he gridded them up and I've seen some early drawings in his stuff about all the all the wall drawings so there's every different um, different panel talks about a different story like the floods like the kingi tanga like um uh the coming the migration of maori to aotearoa and uenuku so every panel has a different story and i knew that from a kid but i didn't i went into research closely his work and so those those series of works are a culmination of a bigger study about Ru Anderson and his tuku tuku and then um then I moved on from that and ended up with my own colors and and relating them to stories about um you know pills medication gabapentin hmm. spoken in an our real and our painted real of tuku tuku so so I painted a pill with a tuku tuku pattern underneath that relates to the gabapentin pill and what it does so yeah it deals with the nerves and all that so i done eight pills uh, with eight, eight different tukutuku the work that was presented at like Waka, Waka, Waka museum yeah so that's a, that's that the end part for me is um diverting away from rua and into my own uh, personal approach to tukutuku hmm. uh, to tell a, to tell the story so that we use. So you are reimagining to yeah. some degree and recontextualizing. Yeah. You know, taking it out of the yeah. fado yeah. and, and onto the canvas. Yeah. 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 So it's not just about replicating Ruhr's work, and I think a, a few people thought that I was, you know, painting Ruhr's style to to hock them off, which is not not true. Um, I'm. I'm actually in a body of work about learning about my grandfather's practice, and it was quite um, interesting. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about process for a mm. while. Um, not least of all, you know, photography and where that sits in your practice. Mm. So, you know, you talked earlier about 
um, like it sounded like photography really got under your skin, you know, working in the dark room. Mm. But it, it feels like it remains a really important part of a process because almost everything you paint uh, is from derives from photographs from a photograph yeah. that you've taken. Well, so yeah. So so where does where does photography sit in your practice? And you know why almost um, why bother painting? You know, when yeah. you, you have a photograph, what are you yeah. adding to that image by um, you know reimagining it mm. in, a, in, a, in a in a painting? I think I think I use photography as a tool to help me. It's like a, um, having having a sketchbook, but in but in photographs. So I came from a drawing background through James James's practice, mm. and so I my my first love is life drawing. So I did that, um, and I did that quite well as a student. Uh, so that was the first cue that I could draw, and I drew from life. And we went through all those things about the principles and art. And it's a rite of passage for a painter. And yeah, right? yeah, that's yeah, right. You, you learn life. about yeah. those things when you when you go through school. So I loved all of that. Um, I think it. The photography really took place um, when I was learning, when I was at Wycliffe, um, learning that using our technologies, our modern technologies, is okay. I mean, there's so much kind of, what do you call it, um, intimidation I suppose for artists that or uh, I don't know if that's the word uh, shy sort of there's a myth about it not you know not being cool or you're not a real artist if you if you use you know technologies such as photographs to paint and everything you know yeah. explanation as to why it's not not good or not au fait with people with Which other per artists personally is, it sounds a little ridiculous to me yeah but. yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah, i've um you know through history people have used their technologies and some have used it in quiet and hidden that aspect um some people are right out there you know uh through the ages um, I think uh, Goldie and Lindur had a history in in photography, and used that as a tool to the to some extent has it been explored through Auckland Art Gallery. Mm. Uh, for me, um, it's part of my practice. The way I see now, that fast being able to capture that experience. Um, I'm used to and I enjoy exploring photography just as much it helps me because I'm uh, one I'm I'm dyslexic so and see it wanting to represent something um, if I had done it by memory my memory is bad on all avenues <laughs> including you know including drawing from memory um, and that's not what I, that's not how I operate. So I operate comfortably um, with a camera. Now in mm -hmm. saying that, um, I have um, thousands of images and I collect one 
or two that I'm interested. And out of that one or two, there might be something that I want to shift. Like I, there was a crower on a motor scooter and he was zipping past a housing corp house and he was actually way back at the beginning but I wanted him in the centre of my work so I moved him and his little scooter to the middle of the work composition in my brain and my painting and then I created that composition there so it's a way of seeing but it's not the be all and end all of a, of, of a photograph immediate replication yeah so I suppose but, that yeah. starts answering that question of you know what what, are you, what is that transformation process for you of working in, in originally from that photograph to into a painting you yeah. know what do you feel yeah. like you're adding yeah I shift things around I bring things in or out um I work with one single thing maybe subject the key subject and 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 lose everything else um it's just it's a tool for me to to remember to, to think about so composition um, what I'm, yeah that, that composition isn't necessarily determined by the photograph itself you'll play around with that to get yeah. it right yep yeah I do and then are you are you sketching out that composition structure on a work yes. you know before you start painting yes. so underpainting presumably and then sketching yes yes um sketch it in um on top of then do all my ground layers on top of that and then slowly work um work, work forward and we, we talked we touched on this earlier you work across quite a range of scale mm. so how does that work in the practice um you know what is what is, what does scale mean to you big small in between uh so a small painting can be just as um finicky or or fast as a bigger work so it just depends on how how the work how the work manages to come to come out i have works that just come out without a problem big or small doesn't matter yeah but the the smaller works are uh more enjoyable for me yeah to paint or to, to paint to paint yeah oh, interesting yeah because i can work on on quite a few um, with the bigger work, I have to stay with it longer. When is a painting finished? A painting is finished. Well, I ha- on my wall, I have all these nails. And I set up, you know, as I create a work to bring forward, um, I chuck them up on the wall. And then I choose works in rotation to, to work on. So I'm pulling them off the work, working on them, building up their layers, and then I'll put them back and work on another one. So that goes around in rotation, and then I see a work that I don't want to touch anymore, and I'll say that that's done. And, um, yeah, and then I'll just keep on going. And with the works that are done, I'll send them out into the, into the sitting room and give them a rest for a while and not look at them. And then I'll carry on shoving them out the door <laughs> and then I'll bring one in, have a look at it and say, well, yeah, no, I need to, and then I'll have a go at it. So a little bit of time yeah. in between. Yeah. 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 Um, mm. and, and in that process, what, you know, what's motivating you to, to keep painting? You're still seeing new things every day. Yeah. I think, I think as, as my life rolls out, 
and things that we we have to do like um you know at the moment my whanau in there prepping kai for lunch and I walk in past them to go and get something I could see all this carrying on and I you know see you you know paintings popping up all over the place as I so I just you know roll with that some technical questions you mm. prefer working in, in oil yep how how did you come to working in, in oil? Much experimentation to get to that as a material? Yeah. Um, like uh, when I was at, um, in my younger years, 20s, uh, 30s, um, I was very much into acrylic and could handle acrylic really well. And I muddled about with oil, uh, not really understanding it. Uh, when I, or having confidence in it, uh, when I went through to Wycliffe, I I got stuck into the oils and really um, worked through that so much that now I'm no good with acrylic. So the oils started offering or presenting yeah. something to you that oh, was yes, the different than be- acrylics. The beautiful, um, you know. Sometimes, sometimes it can give you hell oils you know they can they can appear dry and um and some and but to work with them is very um the texture the butter like texture and learning how to work with them you know wet on wet dry you know dry wet on dry and all of that time when they need resting um summer time's great for drying works you know, in a hurry for me, I ha- you know, and, and I have to do timing, so I have to stop painting, you know, a while as much as I can before they're offered up to to a gallery to put on the walls. So I have to, you know, the the bare minimum um, that I've gone to is a is a week, two weeks in a summer. You have to plan way longer in winter, yeah. and so I've learned how to work work those out to make sure that they get they get dry works but there's been some hairy moments definitely with <laughs> with oils and um, having to package yeah. them up and send them down the line yeah, to a gallery yeah yeah, yeah. so mm. yeah and, and your, your color palette seems slightly toned down is yeah. that fair like you know do you have a sense that you're taking the, the color out of things slightly I, I, for the recent works, I think that there is a, a lot of colour. Mm. And I think that also works out about what I do. You know, most of my work that is done in summertime, you know, will have sunnier days <laughs> <laughs> than those in, in winter and, and inside. And um, so my my palette reflects that. You know, it, it also reflects the, um, the photographic quality that is appears in there it's no mystery you know when people say oh my gosh that looks just like a photograph (laughs) um and it's because it is because my (laughs) eyes my eyes pick up all those qualities that arrive in a camera absolutely so not just color but depth as well yeah that's right and i and i think about vermeer and how he was using the lens to pick up his threads and everything and and tonal values and and those 
pieces that he was painting within the painting um, that would appear that the lens was a bit skewed or the, you know, all of that, all of that arrives when you're using mechanical tools like cameras. It's really interesting yeah. to hear you talk yeah. about Vermeer because it's something that Grant, like a conversation with Graham Sidney as well. Yeah. And he's, you know, certainly a Vermeer fan. Um, yeah. So interesting to hear you both coming from very different practices. Yeah, yeah. Both talking about Vermeer as an influence. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I, I actually listen to them. I listen to the, the documentaries. So all the artists that I'm... Um, through from Michael Burman's through to you know Vermeer's documentaries I listen to them all while I'm painting yeah and that offers up you know some comfort when you're late night painting and you're listening to these artists or the narrator narrator talking about you know the artist and what they've go through and being through yeah well that leads, perfectly, some comfort. That leads mm. perfectly to another question which was you know is, is part of the practice about problem solving and and if it is how do you manage that oh all the time all the time it's the constant juggling of balls in the air especially when you're rotating rotating you know 20 30 works on the wall at the same time you each 20 work, or 30 yeah 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 each yeah. work each work requires um you know, time, and they've got their own issues, <laughs> and um, so you know you have to work it out for every one. And I tell you, and I heard this from um, Dr. Richard Cooper, who came down to visit at Waikato Museum um, for a talk. Um, you know, he said that after he did this um, mammoth undertaking of drawings and paintings. Um, during COVID, um, 365 he was aiming for out of the year, so drawing and painting every day. You know, he came out of that earlier than he expected and, you know, really buggered, like really drained. And that's how, that's the first time I had heard that from another artist because after I do a big body of work, I'm shattered. You know, sometimes I come out of the studio and sort of like fall like a tortoise onto the onto the bed. You know, like you know, Tracy gets, flips the blanket over and I'm just crashed, and the paint is brush is still in my hair. But um, you know, yeah, it's like that. And and you come out and you and you need some time to recover from that. Yeah. Well, I'm not surprised. Don't you said mm. you worked on multiple works at once before, but I didn't yeah. realize it was thirty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So I do them in batches of five or six, but. Mm. I work um, like I work up five or six at one point and then I leave them at a certain point, work up another five or six and and then I end up with this wall end out there of paintings that I have to rotate around. Yeah. Yeah, about about yeah, between twenty and thirty works. And, and outside of that approach, um, mm-hmm. what is your approach like in the studio? So, you know, are you Paint when you feel like it, a strict nine to five, something in between. Yeah, this is my my holiday uh, now, so all my walls are a bare. Um, so Having I have just sent some work to, to yeah, Marvel I just for sent some work. Show. I just had a big um, a solo show in December, so that took a lot of the work, and then this um, a nice relaxed three pieces uh, for Tim. <laughs> And uh, that was good, got those to him. And then I had a, I'm having a bit of a break, but know that in the days I'm coming to work up another lot of work to send down to. There's a paid show in June. Yeah, in June. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah. And what, what do you learn through that process? What have been some key lessons um, in terms of problem solving? Uh, so one of the lessons is don't overcommit yourself to to other things. I think if you're going to be a, I mean, part of life is living life and out, you know, and doing different things. Mm-hmm. But that's if you're a painter or if you're an artist that is working with galleries and you know as a professional, you know you you soon learn when you get squeezed into a time frame. And you've got all these other people that you're committed to, so um, yeah, don't don't do that. You know, have your time out, but but um, ha- leave a lot of time for your work. Mm. Yeah, make sure you get your 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 working on time. Don't don't like throw it through the door, <laughs> throw it through the door and, and run away because you're scared. Hoping it's, hoping yeah, it's dry. Yeah, hoping it's all right. Yeah, yeah. no. Um, yeah. yeah. Right, the like, final question that I'm asking all artists, if you put aside, you know, any limitations of budget or a piece held, you know, in a um, public institution, what, you know, what work or what artist would you love to live with? Mm. Yeah, I've been thinking, I've been thinking about, uh, that I mean, I love a lot of artists. I love you know, Paula Arrigo. I love Frida. Frida was one of the first woman artists that I that I came across as a student, and um, and a student in James. He introduced me to her her work, and throughout my life, my life mirrors hers. So I have, you know, apart from her huge, massive global following, um, I I have a rapport with her life um, because it mirrors my own. In what ways does it mirror? Your uh, own? Her life as a woman, you know, if you if you watch the movie, you don't you don't have to be, you know, you have to be told, and so. Uh, her life as a as a as a woman and as an artist, I have the deepest respect for her and her culture and people. Uh, so I'd I'd definitely shake up with her. Um, <laughs> it should be fun, and she she you know she does she does all the things that I I do uh, in life, and and has lived the life. I've lived the life similar. Uh, to hers, so you know, would I think would get on. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to Hiria speak about her practice. I wanted to highlight there is plenty of opportunity for you to see Hiria's work coming up. She has a very busy next 12 months with several shows in Auckland and Wellington. From the 29th of June, Page Galleries in Wellington will present her next solo show. Then Tim Melville will show works as part of a group landscape show in October, and then a solo show of Hiria's in November. For your 2024 diary, the New Zealand Portrait Gallery in Wellington will present a survey show of Hiria's work from the 14th of March. I hope you'll join me for episode 5 of The Good Oil. Thanks again for listening. Kakite anō.